Hi everyone, welcome to Borderlands, a multi-episode podcast about the US-Mexico migration border policies and their impact on communities in one of the most militarized, controlled, and deadly counties of the border, Pima County in the state of Arizona. In this first episode, we'll ask ourselves, how Borderlands became Borderlands? What's the story? Or better, what's its history? What's Borderlands? For some people, it's the southwest border, the far west with sand, cactus and dust, like in the movies. For others, it's part of the more modern native land. For some others, it's El Norte, the north of Mexico. Borderlands is a mix of communities with different perspectives in seeing and living the region. In Borderlands, you have also cities like Tucson, where I lived for six months. You have villages, ranches, national park and monuments, wildlife refuges, bombing range. Borderlands could be materialized by the Sonoran Desert and its nature. Being crossed by the international border between the US and Mexico, this desert occurs primarily in Mexico, two-thirds of its total area. In the US, most of the Sonoran Desert can be found in the south of Arizona. It has many plants and animals. Uh, the desert receives rainfall during the winter months and also during the summer monsoons in July and August. You'll find different types of cacti, of course, like the famous saguaro with so much personality, but also trees, grass and flowers in springtime. More than 700 species of birds, mammals and insects use the borderlands during their annual migrations. Some of these animals are endemic species, only living in some area of the desert. For centuries, there have also been different communities living on this land. Let's have a look on the history of the international border between the US and Mexico. Listening to Joan Coutts, a writer and a map maker who lived in the Sonoran Desert for years. We could go quickly over the um, quickly over the Spanish conquista era, um, which uh, sort of began with the arrival of Cortes and Nuno de Guzman, um, the conquista in what is now called Mexico, um, and the the Spanish conquista pushed its frontier northwards um, between sort of 1541 to like the late 1600s. Um, the the border never really got of the of new what was called New Spain never really got as far as what is now the U.S.-Mexico border until uh, the missionary conquista began in, with uh, Kino in, the, in 1698, I think. Um, you have to double-check my dates, but I think it was 1698 uh, when Kino first arrives in just south of what we now call Nogales. And he... Uh, basically set about to establish missions um, throughout the Sonoran Desert to claim the Sonoran Desert for the Spanish crown using the, the, a missionary-based conquista. Um, he also uh, set about claiming uh, the Sonoran Desert for the Spanish crown by renaming and remapping um, the area that he was guided to by his autumn Uh, primarily autumn guides. So we have this idea that like Kino discovered things or people say, you know, Kino discovered Arizona or Kino found uh, 
Sonoita. It's like, of course, Kino didn't find or discover anything. He was guided to places by uh, autumn people, um, to places that were already known and already existed, already had names. Um, but he set about creating these maps where he uh, Europeanized, or he, he named places after in ways that were, that told like a European version of history. So he would name places after uh, the saints' days on which he arrived there. So we have uh, the, the, the clear example of that is the Kawak uh, Shonoitag, which is what we now call Sonoita, which is a, an autumn community. And Kino came in and wrote it on the map as San Marcelo de Sonoitag. And now we call it Sonoita. So he began this, I, and he published his map. So he was sort of putting out into the world his definition, his, um, his, his definition of the Sonoran Desert. Um, so but the Spanish um, were actually kicked out of the Sonoran Desert during the, sort of the Second Pima, what we call the Second Pima Rebellion of 1751. And uh, the Spanish, the frontier of New Spain, retreated southwards again until there were still settlers coming up, but the sort of the official Spanish frontier retreated southwards. Uh, and then in 1821, we have the Mexican Revolution and this the area that was New Spain becomes Mexico. And again, greater expansion. Mexico has a policy of assimilation, a policy of where the U.S. has a policy of creating reservations and isolating people on reservations. The Mexican policy was very much a policy of assimilation, and we're going to erase these people by just making them everybody Mexican. Um, so the Mexican border sort of gradually... Uh, expands northwards all the way up to Canada, basically, to the British, British are in Washington and what's now Washington State and Oregon, and the Mexican, that's the Mexican border, the Mississippi and, or not the Mississippi, the, um, you know, Colorado is in Mexico, New Mexico is in Mexico, like all these places in Mexico, Texas is Mexico, um, until uh, 19, 1846, I think, is the Texas Revolution, and Texas becomes independent from Mexico. Um, but there's a lot of, like, um, there's U.S.-American settlers coming into what is then Mexican territory, or so-called Mexican territory, um, and there's uh, Mexicans, like, it's a kind of blurry big mess. You know, nobody's, like, super exactly sure where is the border, because uh, it's not a hard line. Uh, then uh, 1848, U.S.-Mexican War, and uh, Mexican President Santa Ana decide, or Mexican President Santa Ana is trying to hold on to power, basically. And he has no money, and he needs an army, and Mexico has had, like, 20 presidents in two years, and which is not a quotable statistic, by the way. It's like an exaggeration for effect. Um, and so Santa Ana sells off uh, what is now California, Colorado, parts of Wyoming, northern Arizona, north of the Gila River, New Mexico, basically all of the northern Mexican territory Santa Ana sells to the, to the U.S. in 1848. Um, but the U.S., uh, because at that point, uh, you know, the big thing in the U.S. is manifest destiny, and we are, like, we have a God-given right to stretch from sea to shining fucking sea, um, and so the U.S. is not, like, fully finished with its ideas of expansionism. And we're also in the 1850s, the big burning question that is, 
impacting everything that's happening in the U.S. is this question of slavery and what and states that are going to allow slavery or whether slavery is going to continue. Um, and so when California becomes a state, California becomes a free state, um, New Mexico territory uh, is not a state, so it's not either a free state or a slave state. Um, but California becoming a state upsets the balance of power in the Senate because they had set it up so it's like every time they added a free state, they also added a slave state. So there's two, there's a balance of power in the Senate. By California becoming a free state, there are now two more free state senators than there are slave state senators. And so President Pierce appoints Jefferson Davis his Secretary of War. And Davis wants to expand slavery into the western new u.s west uh, west what is now the u.s west and so he uh davis's plan he has like a threefold plan to expand slavery westwards one of the prongs of that plan is the butterfield overland stage which will um sort of spread the ideology of slavery westward uh, his another part of his plan, uh, which he cooks up with his friend James Gadsden, is to petition California to split itself into two states and create a slave state in the southern half of California. And then the third part of this plan is to build the a railroad, a, a transcontinental railroad that goes through the south um, in order to supply, to, to, to take people to this new slave state without having to go through northern free states uh, on the way. And so they're looking for a way to build this railroad, um, and there's mountains in the way. It's like, shit, there's mountains in the way. What are we going to do now? Um, so they decide that the there's various other controversies about the Mesilla Valley and where the border should be. Um, but the fundamental thing is they want to build this railroad, and they want to uh, to have a slave state in the southern part of California. They want the railroad to to go through the south. They want the Pacific. They want the economic strength of having a, a, trans, a Pacific connection. Um, they want the political strength of splitting California into two states, getting two more slave state senators. Um, they want um, control of the railroad running through the slaves, through this, because the North is becoming more industrialized, there's more money. They want to build the economic power of the South, and they want to use the railroad as a way to um, sort of to indoctrinate the population into this idea that slavery is a way of, a normal, like, is the way to, to live. So they realize that they are going to have to go through what is then Mexican territory south of the Gila River in order to build a railroad. And, and Jefferson Davis and, and James Gass are not the kind of people who really give a fuck about Mexican territory or Mexican sovereignty, but um, it would be significantly easier for them to build this railroad if it was on U.S. American soil. And so Gads, um, Davis um, gets Pierce to appoint Gadsden as ambassador to Mexico. Luckily for them, Mexico has been kind of cooperating by putting the, our good friend Antonio Lampe, Lopez de Santa Ana back in power again. He's been out, in and out and in and out and he's back now. And so they take advantage of this moment with somebody who they know they can sell land, buy land from. Um, so Gadsden goes down to, to Mexico City um, and negotiates to purchase, I think it's 620 or 520 million square miles of additional square miles of Mexican territory for $10 million or whatever it is. And there's various other clauses in the treaty. There's clauses about um, 
about railroad grants. There's clauses about the biggest, one of the biggest clauses is this issue that they, the U.S. in 1848 has agreed to be responsible for stopping, quote unquote, what, what the history books would call Apache raids into Mexico, what I would call Apache land defense in Mexico. Um, so the U.S. has uh, agreed in 1848 to be responsible for, for, uh, for attacking Apache land defenders and Mexico, and they've been failing miserably at this activity, so they want out of this clause. So when the, the Treaty of the Gadsden Purchase, um, they, they get this, this block of land and they also get released from their responsibility to attack Apache, Apache land defenders. Um, and then, so this is so that's when the U.S.-Mexico border becomes where it is now after the Gadsden Purchase. It runs from El Paso, sort of jags a little bit, and then it goes in this straight line. There's a funny story that people say that they got to like, they got just past El Paso, and it was like somebody wanted a beer, so just like, pshong, like straight line to Yuma. Um, I don't think it actually quite happened like that, but like that's like what people say. Like everybody was like, "We need a beer. This is hot out here." Um, when they were doing the boundary survey, uh, and so anyway, they they the boundary survey commission comes out. There's a Mexican boundary survey commissioner and a U.S. American boundary survey commissioner, and they go along the border, putting in these little boundary stones every like 500 feet or whatever, like these little plinths. You can actually see them still some, some places on the border. If you Google them, you can see them. they're like little plinths. Certainly they are not stopping anybody from getting across the border. So borderlands is a zone with a long history of control. It's not only a wall or a separation line between two countries, but also a colonial history with its own narratives and reproduction systems still present today, as Joanne Coops explained. I mean, I think that there's... Um I think there's a lot of reproduction of colonialism going on. Um, you know, the Spanish, the frontier of New Spain was essentially marked by presidios, which were like forts and missions, which were um, supposedly uh, benevolent um, forms of conquest or they really they weren't thinking of themselves as conquests you know they were thinking of missionaries as civilizing civilizing and helping and aiding and so i think that the there's always been a tradition of militarization at this border whether it's spanish presidios whether it's u.s american forts um built to attack Uh, indigenous land defenders, um, whether and and the border that we see today, like there's a long history of of militarization at this border, and I feel it's very much a long history of imposed militarization. Um, from what I have read about people who lived here, they weren't asking for necessarily for at some points people have been asking for militarization especially in the face of um apache land defense raids and things like that um but this community feels more has feels to me as though we have more in common with sonoitag than we do with phoenix and that historically there has been more um connections between like Ajo and Sonoitag and Santo Domingo and Alvapia than there have been with 
Phoenix or Tucson or Yuma. Um, certainly a lot of cross-border economics. People would mine here and take their ore to Santo Domingo to have it smelted because Cipriano Ortega put a smelter in there or an ore crusher in there. Um, people married on both sides of the border, like families like lived on, like one son would live in Sonoitag and one son would live in Ajo and one son would live at Batesville, you know, I, one son lived at Quito, you know, so there was definitely, I feel like the community here was more um, in common with other people in this, inside the Sonoran Desert area than people outside. So I think that in some ways, we are very much reproducing this his, his, historical colonialism on the border, where we're reproducing the militarization and we're reproducing the mission system in some ways, in some of the ways that we set up these shelters for people who are crossing. Like we set up shelters and we say, you must be in the shelter. This is where you will receive food. This is where you will receive medical aid. This is where you will receive clothing. In very, and in some ways that feels very similar to me, to Kino or the Spanish conquistadors coming up here and setting up the missions and saying, this is where you will receive food. This is where you will receive clothing. Um, and it's very hard because people need clothing and people need food. But at the same time, it does feel as though we're, we're recreating this colonial history. And now we call it humanitarian aid. And then we struggle with, is that saviorism more like, you know, and we think of, we think of like missionaries and they were very much thinking of themselves as saviors of people. Like we're going to save these unchristianized people and make them Christian. And here we are, we're saying we're humanitarian aid workers. We're going to save these people from not having food and save these people from not having water and save these people by giving them clothes and save these people from the militarization of the border. Um, and the, the missions also thought they were protecting people from settlers and from haciendos and from being enslaved or conscripted into to labor. So this, I feel like there's this very strong connection between the mission system and the shelter system. Um, but it's very hard to say that to somebody because like, what are you going to do? Not give somebody food and not give somebody clothing who's trying to cross this border because you feel like it's reproducing colonialism? Like, get out of here with your abstract intellectual arguments and like, we need to give people food, you know? Um, but I think it's very important that we are aware of that. I don't mean, to, don't mean to say that we shouldn't give people food in the shelters or we shouldn't give people clothes, but we should be aware of that historical colonial context of how we're working and to at least try to identify ways where within that need we might be able to push to, to not reproduce um, colonial structures at the border. I mean, the U.S., I think, has a long history, I mean, obviously we have a long history of racism, but we have a history with immigration of racializing or de-racializing it depending upon the needs of the, of the economy and of the people. Um, so like one example I would give of that is um, the building of the railroads. Like there was a, a lot of promotion of uh, immigration from China and lots of need, lots of the people, they wanted the, the, the railroad robber barons, they wanted cheap labor and so they promoted immigration from China as a way to get that cheap labor and once the railroads were built in by like 1875 they didn't want that labor anymore but of course people families had moved here from China and maybe people wanted to come and be with their families and so Chinese people still wanted to come and the rubber barons didn't quote unquote need them anymore and so the first Chi the first um, US 
Immigration Act in 1882 had a specific, specifically included the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was which specifically said Chinese people cannot come. To so was the first like instance of like explicitly racial immigration policy um, based upon race or nationality. And in fact, Jeff Milton, as the first Border Patrol agent here, his task was not to stop people from Mexico coming over. I mean, he encouraged people from Mexico coming over. People from Mexico and people like from the US going backwards and forwards across the border, totally fine. Like people did it all the time. It's true migration, migration back and migration forward. Um, Migration north and migration south, whatever way, uh, probably a better way to put it. But like, yeah, like nobody gave a about people coming from Mexico. Jeff Milton's remit was to stop Chinese people from crossing the border, not anybody else. You could be from anywhere else in the world and you could get across, like, as long as you weren't Chinese. Um, and I think that has been a pattern that was repeated, um, you know, in the, the, with the, what was it, eight, after the first, second world war, then there was like a need for Mexican, the company said, well, we need Mexican labor. So that we started the Bracero program. And the, again, this migration of people coming north um, for jobs in the summer and the spring and the summer, and then going home for Christmas, um, south um, for Christmas. Um, and this, yeah, like a flow of people uh, migrating backwards and forwards or north and south across the border. And then when, the economy changed again, the US was like, oh no, we don't want that anymore. So now we're going to, you know, now we're going to put in this this new policy based upon our economic needs. And we're going to racialize our immigration policy based upon what what corporations are telling us or what we what we perceive to be our economic needs in the US. Um, If I can just do my rant, if you like, Um, because I get very in my feelings about this, that like what we see that when we, when people talk about migrants, it makes me crazy because migration, like we have had human migration north and south across the border. What we're seeing now is not migration, it's immigration. People are moving to the US and staying because they can't migrate anymore. People who might want to just come up here and work for the spring and take money back and go to their families and stay in their homes can't do that because the border is so heavily militarized that once you get across, except for some really, really, really crazy circumstances, you're not trying to go back and do it again. I, I, can't, I mean, I've never actually talked to anybody, but I can't imagine there are people who have done this journey who think, oh yeah, I'm just going to do this once a year. Like, seems really unlikely to me. We're also seeing people who are not, um, who are U.S. residents. They might be undocumented U.S. residents, but they are U.S. residents who have been swept up in ICE deportation raids and are now trying to get home. That's not migration. It's not even immigration. Like, it's people coming back to the pla- their place of residence, where their family is. And so all these newspaper stories talk about migrants and they've made migrants, this word migrants, this super racialized, super politically charged term. And it is, not only is it politically charged and racially charged, it is also um, linguistically inaccurate in describing what is happening at the US-Mexico border. We're talking about people who were separated from their families by the US, deported to a country who are now trying to get home. They're not migrants. 
That's not the definition of migration. It's not even the definition of immigration. It's people trying to get back to where they fucking live. Sorry. This colonial narrative of terra nullius, empty land, and a colonial narrative of the doctrine of discovery of like Lewis and Clark discovered this, and Kino discovered that, and um, Sam Houston discovered Houston, or, you know, like this, these two twin things that were really taught in schools about um, the sort of founding of the US as being like, oh, there was all this available land and people could just come and take it and it wasn't anybody's and nothing was happening out there. Like, and um, they discovered this beautiful place where they could build a ranch and raise their children and be pioneers and all that crap. And about, um, so I think that one of the ways that that has been reproduced here well, one of the things that I find really interesting about what's happened here is that the more I've learned, unlearned the colonial history of this land and learned, a, attempted to learn a decolonial history of this land, the more I have recognized how many, how, 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 how incredibly vibrant the community was here. There was, there were water sources, there were summer rancherias, there were winter rancherias, there were um, semi-nomadic settlements and settled settlements. There were people living along the Gila River. There were, there's no, between Ajo and Yuma, where there is now no community, settled community, there were at least 30 odd settled communities within this area. And the U.S. has turned, instead of U.S. turning terra nullius into terra occupada or whatever you the opposite of terra nullius is we have taken terra occupado and turned it in to terra nullius like we have deliberately turned this land into an empty land for the purposes of militarizing the border um not just this border but militarizing about borders around the world i mean the barium goldwater bombing range is a place where one of the few places in the world where they live test um, bombs for people from other countries who want to buy them. Um, it's one of the few places in the world where they can live test some of the sonic boom fighter jets for other countries who want to buy them. So we uh, we have taken this really um, this this Hatchet Autumn land, which was a land with people living on it and having culture and community and life and all those things that we supposedly value, and we have turned it into a zone where we can and not only militarize our own border, but also uh, promote the militarization of other borders and sell military equipment to other countries. So we've turned it into a space of empty land and a space where we do things to create empty land in other places. Living in the border area, it's with its history. Over time, the border as a separation between two spaces and therefore between different populations has become more and more important. Its control and surveillance became a priority issue, as well as a form of control on people living on Borderlands or passing by it. You've just listened to the first episode of Borderlands, a podcast about the US-Mexico migration border policies and their impact on communities. The next episode will continue to define how Borderlands is related to migration policies. We'll focus on border regime. What kind of apparatus is used? how it impacts on communities living on Borderlands, and who benefits from it. Thank you for following Borderlands. See you soon. And not to forget, 
The first episode has been mixed by Nicolas Puissant. <laughs> <laughs>